This is Kate Doyle Griffiths, and I'm having a conversation with Chaya Belinsky uh, for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans identifying people. It's January 5th, 2020, and it's being recorded at 129 Pacific Street. Um, so, um, we can talk about anything that you want in any order you want, but uh, if you just want to start, you can tell me your name, your age, uh, any of your uh, identifying characteristics mm -hmm. that you want uh, to be included, when and where you were born. Sure. So, uh, my name is Chaya. I also go by Zoe. Uh, I mean the same thing in Hebrew and Greek, respectively. Uh, they both mean life. Uh, uh, I use any pronouns but he. Um, I was born in Meadowbrook, PA, which is outside of Philadelphia. Uh, and uh, I grew up in, in Warminster, which is a suburb of Philadelphia. And um, I did my undergrad in DC uh, at American University. And then I came back to Philadelphia for um, for my PhD program in philosophy at Villanova University. Cool. Yeah. Um, some identifying features of me. Um, I am a transgender woman. Uh, I am, I'm pretty female identified, but I also embrace and recognize the liminality of trans women's embodiment in particular. And so I am comfortable uh, understanding myself as bi-gender or, or having some sort of ambiguous gender uh, performance or identity. Um, I consider uh, myself to have uh, multiple sexualities that revol revolve around my multiple genders. So I sort of see myself as vaguely bisexual um, uh, as someone who uh, is when I'm attracted to men, uh, insofar as I partially identify uh, with uh, being something like a man at times, it's gay. When I'm attracted to women, insofar as I'm very strongly identified as a woman, it's gay then. So I consider bisexuality to be kind of having multiple sexualities reflecting multiple gender positions in that sense. Um, and uh, let's see what else. I'm, I'm white, Jewish, Jew by choice. Um, uh, I was raised in a Catholic family and uh, I converted to Judaism. I began my conversion in 2010, so about 10 years ago. And uh, I'm finally finalizing that process on May 26th of this year. So uh, I, will, I will be officially converted at that point. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Do you want to tell me maybe the first time you ever heard the word uh, trans or some concept of that idea? I remember I had a conversation with my uh, psychology teacher in high school. I was taking a course on psychology as an elective. And, um, and I know I had heard the term before, but I remember this conversation about um, he used the word transsexual. Mm -hmm. And I explained to him that, that to me, um, despite still identifying as cis and straight and as a boy at the time, going to an all-boys Catholic high school, 
you know, uh, I had a conversation with him in private where I said, I think that transsexuality puts too much emphasis for people like us on, on the sexuality part of it. And really it's about the gender that's more important. And so I encouraged him to use the word transgender as opposed to transsexual. Mm -hmm. And um, he was really receptive to that and he really heard that. But that was like the first conversation mm. I had about trans identity. Um, and, it, and it was from this kind of misguided place of, of like transsexuality is an outdated term and we shouldn't use it anymore. But um, to me, it, it seemed that it, it, it emphasized that it's somehow about sex. Mm -hmm. Uh, in high school, I, I was thinking, you know, I don't think it's it's a sex thing. I think it's a, I think it's something else, you mm. know. And I wanted to use language that reflected that. And so I had that conversation with him, and it it went well. And um, that's probably my first memory of of really discussing trans issues. Uh, what about so you you said you grew up Catholic? What else about your family background and childhood would you want to talk about? Um, I come from a very large family, a very large Catholic, uh, Polish, Irish family. Um, you know, our last name is Belinsky, and there's all this speculation that uh, a number of things could have happened that gave us the name Belinsky. Um, we uh, the we spell it with a Y, uh, and there's speculation that um, we changed it to a Y uh, at Ellis Island because. The Jewish community at the time, the Y is the Jewish spelling, uh -huh. and the Jewish community was more immigrant community was more established, and more um, uh, had more support for each other than the Polish, Eastern European, uh, immigrant community which came later, and so there's this idea that we sort of pretended to be Jews in order to get jobs essentially, um, which is a really counterintuitive idea. There's also this notion that we were originally Jewish and that we converted to Catholicism Ooh. at some point along the line. Now, my cousin um, was doing some genealogical history of our family and discovered that um, the name Belinsky sort of came out of nowhere. Before that, we had a different last name, and she found like a family with the same first name for the father, same first name for the mother, same first name for all the children, but they had a different last name. And so we were sort of speculating as to why we played fast and loose with our family history. We had no real written history. We had no, uh, except on the Irish side, we, we, we had documents of like what, um, you know, Irish, uh, I don't know what the term for it is, but, but um, you know, everyone claims to be descended from an Irish king, and that's probably <laughs> some, somewhat accurate on my Irish side. But on the Polish side, we had no real history that we could point to that was written. And so it was speculated that we had an oral history of some kind, and that um, because we played fast and loose with our name, and uh, sort of materialized as the Belinskys in, uh, without going through Ellis Island, like in, in, in Pennsylvania specifically, we sort of just show up on the record at some point. Um, and so it's speculated that our family might have been like Romani people at some point because 
we were mobile, we did not have a written history, and that um, we sort of came out of nowhere with this last name, Belinsky. Um, so that that's just like the three competing theories as to where my last name comes from. Um, I will say that uh, I come from a very large family. My dad is one of 12, um, and all their names start with M-A-R. Um, so that was a choice that my grandmother made. Um, it, it's something like Margot, Mark, Mary, Marcia, Marianne, Marita, Maris, Marcel, Marlon, Martin. Uh, I got 10 there. I, I don't think I can do all 12. <laughs> um, like I know who they are, but I can't just like list them off because there's so many. And uh, my mom is one of six. And um, her last name was, was Wagner. So she her family was, uh, I guess... Uh, her father was German, of German heritage, but we have mostly Polish and Irish ancestry. Um, yeah, but. And who who lived in your house when you were growing up? Um, it was uh, me, my mom, my dad, my sister, and occasionally my grandmother. My grandmother would rotate like four months with one family, four months with another family, and four months with a third family. And now it's down to two. So she spends six months with, with each of those families. Um, and so uh, she was in and out of, of my life in that sense. So it was a pretty nuclear family, all things considered. How um, would you talk about your class background originally? Um, I come from a place of wealth. Um, uh, my parents, uh, my whole family was pretty upwardly mobile. Um, you know, uh, we have 12 aunts and uncles, so we have people from all different walks of life and all different um, states of employment. Um, uh, some people involved in, in more manual labor, carpentry, uh, how, home repair, home upkeep, things like that. We also have people um, who uh, got involved in law enforcement. My uncle is a cop. My other uncle is a TSA agent. Um, and then you have people like my dad who went on to get his PhD in, um, in molecular biology and he works in cancer research or he did before he retired. Um, my mother, um, was, um, not wealthy for most of her life, but then landed a job with the government in the, as a, as, uh, in the treasury department and she actually uh, worked her way up to being the head of the Philadelphia office mm -hmm. so there are three offices of the treasury on the east coast one in DC one in Philadelphia and one in like Georgia or something like that and she's the head of the Philadelphia office or was before mm -hmm. she retired mm -hmm. and um, so all the social security checks that went out on the east coast had her signature on it so so <coughs> Um, that's my my family's class background. Um, yeah. Um, and what about New York? Like, what's your sort of relationship to the the city of New York? Um, my relation to it is it's big and scary. Um, it is not like Philadelphia, where I feel like very at home and very able to navigate it. Um, it sort of feels like four different cities trying pretending to be one city at times and uh, I do find it very overwhelming 
Um, I have historically had a lot of friends up here, but have not visited much until I got this this job as a Hebrew school teacher at uh, Union uh, Temple in Brooklyn. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, tell me about your job a little bit. Um, so I teach sixth grade students. Um, right now, our curriculum is largely focused on Jewish diversity, so um, especially non-white Jews, Jews around the world, Jews of color, Jews uh, in Africa, um, especially um and the students seem to be really into this um it's making them appreciate being an american jew more appreciate what they have and what they don't have and um connect more to the idea of judaism as a global religion and as a uh you know a set of communities that are all very far apart but also very intimate and and close within themselves and um and uh we're changing the curriculum to be less about hebrew uh text study and more about hebrew through movement which is this jewish curriculum about um, teaching hebrew through um movement and commands and like simon says type games and uh giving people a more interactive approach to hebrew and, and I remember I, I was reading um, the Soviet psychologist Vygotsky, Vladimir, I think it's Vladimir Vygotsky, and uh, I just love his work. He was one of the first, um, I think he was the first person to advocate for inclusive education for um, uh, deaf, mute, and um, developmentally disabled children to... Uh, educate them alongside their able-bodied and neurotypical peers um, rather than segregate the education. So I thought that was really cool. And uh, we were talking about our philosophy for teaching Hebrew and we're like, we're teaching language backwards, right? Like we're teaching decoding, we're teaching the alphabet, we're teaching, or the aleph-bet in in Hebrew. We're we're teaching um, how to decode the words one letter at a time and figure out what that means but Vygotsky says that the original the anatomical atomical unit of language is not the syllable or the letter or even the word but the phrase Um, and so we learn language through phrases and we learn words through their context and so I thought I brought this up at, at Hebrew school. I was like, this is, this is exactly what we need to be thinking about because we are teaching language backwards when we teach kids the Aleph bet first and then we teach them how to put the letters together into words and then we teach them how to recognize vowel sounds and then we teach them how to put them together into sentences and that's all backwards. It's actually more about how you enact language through its use. Um, that's more important. And so um, our Hebrew language curriculum is changing uh, for this reason. And I'm, I'm new to it, so I, I'm new to the school, I'm new to the curriculum, and they're changing everything. And it's, it's, uh, it's a bit overwhelming, but um, I really like the idea of taking a different approach to language acquisition, mm-hmm. you know. So, so when did you start working? I started working um, on December 15th. Um, and then we had a break for the holiday, and so this was actually my second class I taught. Um, 
today. Yeah. How do you find the students and the context, I guess, in terms of context? Um, yeah, the students are interesting. Um, they're, they're all really smart, like unbelievably smart. And um, they're all really interested in the material we're presenting. They have interesting questions about it. They have interesting perspectives on it. Um, when they're, you know, well-behaved enough to have an actual conversation about it. Um, you know, they're sixth graders, so they're starting to question authority and question, um, you know, whether the things adults tell them to do are always right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, there is some friction there, but, um, I think, um, they have a lot of respect for me as the new teacher who they don't have a rapport with yet. Um, and so they listen to me better than they do my co-teacher, um, who has been having some frustrating encounters with one student in particular, um, who is kind of disruptive and bullying the other students and making it very difficult to create a, a welcoming learning environment. And uh, we split the class up for part of the lesson and each teach different parts of it. And he tends to behave better in my sections. Um, but, um, but overall, I'd say the students are great. Um, you know, they're really invested in, in learning more about their Jewish identity and, and what that means. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a real privilege to work with them, I think. So I don't think I'd be asking you about this, but you started this job sort of in the midst of a spate of anti-Semitic attacks here yeah. in New York, and I'm curious how that has affected your experience of it. Well, today there's a march, um, and a lot of students were absent because of the march. Um, a lot of Jewish families are going to that march, um, which was organized by some larger Jewish organizations that I'm not really a fan of. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of Jewish organizations with ties to Israel, but... Um, um, but I think it's really important that the students are aware of and processing what's going on in the world. And we seem to be doing that. We seem to be talking about it and creating space for those feelings um, because um, I think a lot of the students are scared, mm -hmm. you know, and I think reasonably so. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have an earliest memory of New York City? I came here when I was a kid with my family and um, I remember a new Sonic the Hedgehog game had come out and I kept asking people in my family to borrow money so I could buy it and no one lent me the money and I went home crying because I couldn't get the new Sonic game and that's my earliest memory of New York City and I just remember walking around like Times Square and, and, and seeing all the big, big buildings and just being like I'm gonna latch on to my family and not get lost mm. because this is a huge city and I still feel very small in it. <laughs> I think I'm still reliving that. What year do you think that was or about? Um, I must have been like nine or ten. Um, so I'm I'm 28 now. So that that would be 
almost 18, 19 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who do you? Who would you say are the most important people in your early life or communities that you've been a part of that have been important? Mm-hmm. That's a hard to answer question. A lot of these things come down to the fact that I feel very dissociated from the person I was before transition. And so most of my big aha moments, you know, came later. Um, I actually, I have a tattoo on my, on my side here that uh, it says, surely the Lord was in this place and I knew it not. And it's a quote from the Torah. It's said by Jacob um, when he wakes up from a dream and he has a vision and he's like, oh shit, like there's divinity here. And that's been largely my experience, um, that belated encounter with divinity. And like um, as a trans person, only discovering divinity in my body, uh, which is why I got it tattooed on my body, you know, because that's what I discovered was there is the divine in me um but only after my transition did i discover that so thinking back to like who's the most influential person on me before i transitioned at age 21 is is kind of difficult there were a lot of moving parts a lot of moving people who influenced me and i was sort of all over the place with what i believed and what i thought um I was always an anarchist or a socialist. Like, that never changed, like, throughout my childhood. Because it, it seemed to me that I was like, if we could just share what we have, the world would be a better place. Mm-hmm. And that was the moral intuition I approached politics with from a very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as, like, um, my understanding of myself... I think it would probably be my my best friends in high school, Luke and Claire. Uh, Luke is uh, trans. Uh, Claire is... I'm not sure if he identifies as trans. Claire uses he, him pronouns, but still goes by Claire. Um, Last I checked. Um, And uh, Luke is is a trans man um, who went to high school at the... Uh, sister school to my all boys Catholic high school, so we we sort of did the whole swap, and we were we always joked about going back to like our five year reunion, like <laughs> pretending we went to the opposite school, um, but um, they they're both devoutly Catholic people, um, but both very queer in their mm. own way. And um, they definitely influenced my thinking about religion, and they definitely influenced my thinking about transness because um, uh, Luke was the first trans person I knew, and um, I was the first one to use his real name. Like, we had a very close connection in that sense. Um, And uh, Claire was my first girlfriend, and turned out to be a lesbian, and I turned out to be a a girl and so it was all like you know that early pre coming out gaydar that attracts queer people to each other I don't know how it works but um, we all found each other and, and they were very influential on me in that sense yeah. 
And what about now? How would you describe your communities that are important to you? Um, I have a number of communities, uh, mostly in Philadelphia, that are very close. I'm very close with. Um, and three or four years ago, I started a political collective called the Chavarut Collective. Um, and the Chavarut Collective is a mostly leftist, mostly queer, mostly trans coalition of, uh, and mostly Jewish, but not all Jewish. Um, uh, and we centered our practice around um, weekly Shabbat potlucks. Mm. There's this saying that um, more than the Jews have kept Shabbat, Shabbat has kept the Jews. And I think that also is true of the collective. More than the collective has kept Shabbat, Shabbat has kept the collective. Because mm -hmm. we do weekly Shabbat potlucks, everyone brings food, we do a service together, we say the blessings together, we share a little bit about ourselves and our stories and what we're going through at the time, and we all support each other. And that's been a really holistic, uh, wholesome model for community engagement for me, and it's been going on for four, four years now. Uh, we survived two major schisms, we survived um, you know, accusations of abusers in our community, and we uh, um, accusations of abuse that happened prior to the collective's formation that then we had to sort of grandfather in and, and deal with in our own way. And then we had to uh, actually expel one of our members of leadership who um, was being, uh, you know, patently abusive. Uh, to a number of members in the collective and so uh, we survived all that um, and I think it's largely because of the the structure of weekly Shabbat potlucks that like really held us together because we we were at a point of like four or five or six people attending a week at our low after the two schisms and then now we're up to 10 15 20 people wow. what were the schisms about? um the first schism was that what I mentioned earlier, which was um, a claim about sexual abuse that happened before the collective was formed. And there were a very vocal minority. I don't even want to say a minority. It was mostly just one person who really did not want to do any sort of process, did not want to... Um, create any space for dialogue or or mutual understanding or coming to a healing place really wanted um sort of retribution or consequences or which which i completely understand like wanting to um see concrete consequences for people who are abusers but they were the only member of the community who felt unsafe around this person after it had been years since this actually occurred. And so um, they left the community, took a couple people with them. A, a lot of people just burnt out because we tried to create a transformative justice system or process. And it ended up falling mostly to the work of my chavruta, which means study buddy, partner, um, a variety of things in Hebrew, um, or, or it's actually Aramaic. Um, but my Chavruta, Jess, um, she uh, tried to 
almost single-handedly put together a system with arbiters and a system with with um you know info gathering and assessing mutual harm if that were the case and uh it was like a a 10-page document that she came up with and it was all in very legal speak and i think that was mainly the drawback to it was it was too complex it was too too much and everyone who was looking into it was burnt out Mm -hmm. everyone who was working on the problem was overwhelmed Mm -hmm. and so we lost a lot of membership just through attrition Mm -hmm. um and during that schism Mm -hmm. and the the person who wanted this this other person to leave uh just in 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 the sense of being banished um that person ended up leaving of their own accord Mm -hmm. um and so uh it kind of just blew over is what happened Mm -hmm. um everyone burnt out and we lost a lot of membership and um and then we found new blood we found new people to come in and really replenish that energy that had been lost um the second schism was just a, a breakup i had uh i was we we have had a number of problems with like large-scale polycules <laughs> you know becoming too clicky you know and um we had to institute some rules about pda in Havarut events so that you know people would feel welcome and safe and and not feel left out and not feel like uncomfortable around people making out on the couch which is like <laughs> you know we're a young queer collective you know these things are a part of it you have to have these conversations about like when it is appropriate to express queer sexuality mm-hmm. which is so repressed in other spaces you know people deserve to have a space in which that's appropriate um but it might not be this space right mm-hmm. you know because we're trying to create like you know almost a family here and mm-hmm. and it, it feels weird and strange to to have like so many people dating each other so many people involved with each other's lives in such an intimate way and it becomes very difficult to find any kind of mediators any kind of objective point of view if it becomes very difficult to find um you know any sense of of like belonging beyond that desire for each other you know Mm. like like what is our real relationship to one another uh if it's not just who we're fucking you Mm. know um so I had a a pretty bad breakup with a member who had themselves brought a lot of membership to us. And so when they left the collective, I wouldn't, I I don't describe it as a schism, Jess and some others have described it as a schism in the past because we lost so many members. Mm. Um, But it really was just a bad breakup, Mm. I think. Um, That was the main issue. What? Other than uh, pot, uh, Shabbat potlucks, does your collective get up to that you would want to talk about in public? Yeah, um, we do a number of things. Um, we've done a number of trans clothing swaps. Um, we've done um, mutual aid projects. We've raised money for people in need. Um, we've helped p- people in the collective move. You know, we've provided mutual aid and support to each other. Um, and... Um, We've been working on like a whole slate of other projects that like 
we tried out so many different organizational structures to try and make projects happen beyond Shabbat. And they largely haven't worked. Um, uh, we were talking about having a pay nothing uh, resource list that you like a resource library so you can borrow things from other people. Um, we've talked about um, uh, access to like medical supplies and medical um, resources and services and finding ways to pool resources to uh, get people access to things like HRT or uh, insulin or um, you know any any uh, uh, therapy mm -hmm. um, and um, and we've had medium success with those but um, there's a lot of like yeah like um, getting people access to HRT uh, off the books is very illegal you know mm -hmm. and so we we don't you know talk about that um, so explicitly but it, it's like um you know we we've we've wanted for a long time to expand the kind of services we do and the kind of resources we can provide um we also um i i started a tradition of doing of studying the weekly parsha which is the torah portion that we read at shabbat services every week and by the time you go through a year you've read the whole torah um, and so we've started doing that um, as a parallel to the um, to the potlucks, and so we do that weekly. Um, we started a weekly check-in thread, so we can like talk to each other and get get to know each other, see what what people are going through. Um, a lot of us do a lot of other political work. is is the important thing to remember. A lot of us are members of Philly Socialists. Um, some of us write for Regeneration Magazine. Some of us. Um, uh, are involved with the Marxist Center. Um, people have been involved with Food Not Bombs. People have been involved with um, uh, a variety of other uh, Jewish and leftist organizations in the city. Uh, we have a lot of members who go to Colt Zedek Synagogue, which is the LGBT synagogue in West Philadelphia. Um, and uh, we're doing a lot of activism around that right now because uh, we have a member of the collective and of Colt Zedek, who is a, a friend who uh, is uh, deaf and uh, is struggling to access interpreter services. And so we've been advocating for them uh, a good deal lately and uh, in dialogue with the, the, the Jewish community and Colt Zedek specifically. And uh, we're thinking about how we want to move forward at this point, um, uh, but it's it's been a struggle um, because finding uh, Jewish competent interpreter services is actually extremely difficult. Mm. Um, because even if you're interpreting all the English in the service, there's still large parts of the service in Hebrew. There's still large parts of the service that are sung. Um, there, the service is confusing to an outsider who's not Jewish, and so you really need someone who's both Jewish competent and a, a licensed interpreter, and that's a very hard intersection to find. Mm -hmm. um, and 
we've been really struggling with that. Um, One of the questions I suggest here is is sort of about the experience of transness in a moment of increased trans visibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and it occurs to me that there might be some overlap with that and some of the sort of increased visibility of Jewish people in this particular moment, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so any comments on that, on that thought? <laughs> yeah. Um, like, I think right now it's, it's a really dynamic time to be trans and Jewish. I think... Um, It's this weird dynamic where, like, most of my Jewish friends are trans and most of my trans friends are Jewish. And um, and so we, we're constantly fighting a battle on at least two fronts, if not, if not more. Um, and it strikes me as a time when there are a lot of opportunities, but uh, also a lot of, you know, conflicts with people's families are really common. And... Mm estrangement from families and trying to help people through that and trying to survive the holidays together like having a uh, a friendsgiving instead of a thanksgiving mm-hmm. dinner um was was hosted through the collective um so that people who didn't have families to go home to could could um you know celebrate together um and and you know we did we did a land dedication and it was very critical of the of the idea of Thanksgiving, but at the same time, it's, it's a time where people feel left out and feel alone. Um, and so we try to mitigate that. Um, um, it strikes me that a trans Jewish perspective is really important to develop, Mm -hmm. uh, collectively. And I think, um, it is developing and it is, it is out there. I'm, I'm like new to Twitter. Uh, actually, I'm just on just got on Twitter a couple months ago, and uh, I'm starting to see the conversations that are emerging on Twitter, which um, are encouragingly similar to the conversations I've seen on Facebook and Jew, Jew book or let you know whatever you want to call it. Um, um, yeah, there's there's a lot out there right now. Like there's. A book that came out in 2012 called Balancing on the Mechitza. The Mechitza is the divider in Orthodox synagogues between the men's and women's sections. And so Balancing on the Mechitza is about being transgender in the Jewish community and has a lot of first-person perspectives. So that was like a really valuable resource that came out. There are trans rabbis, trans Orthodox rabbis now. Like, it's, it's a very exciting time. I mean... Um, and it's exciting for me to be involved in Jewish education as a trans woman, as mm-hmm. as someone who brings a lot to the table in terms of my experiences with gender and my experiences with um, seeing the Jewish community in a more complete way, having been both in a... I, I was originally converting Orthodox... And that was before I transitioned. Mm. And I got to see from a very traditional male perspective what the Jewish community looks like. And now I have a very radically different orientation as a queer trans woman. Mm. Um, How did that start? How did you decide to do that? To convert? Yeah, to... 
I met someone named Ariel in high school or in college, rather. Uh, we started dating uh, for four or five years, um, and they were the one who was like the efficient cause of my conversion. Like I saw Judaism through their eyes. They taught me Hebrew. They taught me almost everything I know about the basics of Judaism and about their Jewish practice. And I became very observant, very quickly, very religious. Um, I kept Shabbat, I kept kosher. Uh, I was uh, Shomer Mitzvot, which means keeper of the commandments. And so um, I started to convert under an Orthodox rabbi um, in DC where I was doing my undergrad. Mm. And um, that all burnt down in a shitstorm um, because the rabbi I was studying to convert under turned out to be a sexual predator. Mm. He was putting cameras in the, the mikveh, which is the ritual bath, and recording women in states of undress. And he's now in prison on voyeurism charges. And... Um, he will never be employed as a rabbi in the Jewish community again, you know, like, and that just devastated my mm -hmm. sense of my Jewishness, my sense of uh, my trust in the rabbinate and my trust in Jewish institutions in general. Um, and this was like six or seven years ago. So it's taken me this long to come back to a formal conversion process, mm -hmm. actually, because I was traumatized by this I was I was really upset that I had left the Catholic Church for similar reasons right like because I did not feel I felt that any religion that promoted this kind of thing needed to be protested and opposed and now I found in the Jewish tradition the same thing I was running away from in the Catholic tradition which was sexual abuse by people in positions of power. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was really hard. That was really hard for me. Um, but uh, I eventually came back to it. Um, Ariel supported me the whole time. You know, they've been one of the most important people in my life. Um, and yeah, other than that, it was it was mostly just Jewish practice in general mm -hmm. that that really motivated my wanting to be Jewish. Um, it gave structure to my life in a in a really significant way, and Jewish song and Jewish liturgy and uh, Jewish food, Jewish music, Jewish uh, prayer, all of it really resonated with me at, at like an embodied level whereas i was only theoretically interested in christianity mm. you know but it i found something that like spoke to me at at this embodied level and i ran with it i ran so hard with it like within within a year i was speaking to an orthodox rabbi you mm. know um and then your transition was in between those to beginning of conversion and resumption of conversion. Yes, right? yes. And um, my transition began, uh, I spent a semester abroad in, in Israel, actually, 
um, uh, in 2011 uh, to 2012 when the 2011 offensive on Gaza broke out. And that was a really troubling time for me, um, both in terms of me navigating my gender and my dysphoria and my uncomfortable position seeing myself as a male, um, but also in terms of just like the whole far student team, the student village was divided politically. Everyone was arguing with everyone over the war and whether or not you know, it was okay or whether or not, you know, Israel needs to defend itself, whether or not Gazans are people like it was, it was a very stressful time. And, um, and when I got back from Israel, I decided to transition. And I also decided that I would not go back to Israel, um, at that point. And that was in 2012. I was about 21, 22 at the time. Yeah. So how do you see the relationship between conversion and transition? Because it seems like there's mm-hmm. literal overlap, but also sort of thematic overlap. Yeah, there's a lot of thematic overlap. And I see a lot of um, like traditional Bible stories as, as being about transition or being about um, uh, conversion. Um, I mean, the, the typical conversion narrative from the, the Torah or from the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, is uh, the, the book of Ruth and Naomi. Um, and she says to Ruth, she says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And it's in that order, right? The people come first. Mm-hmm. And so it's really identifying with the Jewish people wholesale like for better or for worse right like that that's what made me realize i was a jew when i realized that like there are people whose politics whose opinions i despise but who are still jewish and i still feel connected to um and similarly with with transition like it was about identifying with women about identifying with the struggles of women that I, I heard about, like people seem to, women seem to trust me with their experiences, probably intuiting that I'm not just a boy. Mm-hmm. And, and so the more I heard about that, the more I identified with that struggle politically. And, 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 um, and for a while I became, like when I first transitioned, I, I saw myself as a lesbian. Um, in a very political sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until I met my fiance, uh, Alex, who is a trans man, uh, that I really reconsidered my sexuality and, and considered bisexuality as an, as an option. And so I think I, I followed that route that a lot of trans women follow with, with radical um, desire for women and desire to be a woman mm-hmm. and desire to be with women, mm-hmm. you know, all encompassing the same kind of dysphoria, all encompassing the same kind of motivation to transition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, we're back in business. Um, I guess I'm curious, you want to talk a little bit more about your political history or biography? Sure. Um, 
so like I said earlier, I I grew up with strong anarchist and socialist sensibilities. I was sort of undecided on which which direction I wanted to go for a long time. Um, in college, I was largely an anarchist. Um, and I had, uh, you know, I was in philosophy, so uh, I did my undergrad in philosophy and religion with minors in Jewish studies and queer and sexuality studies. And uh, I actually majored in philosophy by accident. Uh, I was taking religion courses and I got really into Buddhist philosophy. And I started taking a bunch of Buddhist philosophy courses and took a bunch of courses in uh, just Eastern philosophy and um, whatever you want to call it. And, um, and I started getting interested in Nietzsche and Foucault and Derrida and Marx. And um, I was taking coursework on that. And then I went to speak to my advisor and I said, you know, she's this little German lady named Andrea Chemplick. And, and I said, what would it take for me to add a dual degree in philosophy? And she said, okay, let's take a look. And she goes, oh, you're done. <laughs> Let me get you a shirt. Like, <laughs> uh, And she gave me a shirt that said license to think on it, which I was like, okay. Um, wow. So uh, I became more philosophically inclined and... Um, I started reading Marx more seriously, and at that point, I'd say I became uh, a Marxist. The more I read, the more I read from Marx. I really liked the early Marx, the the German ideology, the economic and philosophical manuscripts of 1844. Um, I liked some of his trans transition works, like the Grundrisse, um, and. Um, I was very attracted to this sort of uh, what I would call like Marxist humanism, something like that. Um, um, you know, I was I was very attracted to the idea that you know what, what Marx says: you can be a f farmer in the morning and a fisherman in the afternoon and a critic in the evening. And I was very attracted to that idea. Um, his essay, uh, "The Power of Money," in the eighteen forty four philosophical. And economic manuscripts really influenced me. Um, I've I've cited it in in a number of, of recent works that I've that I've written, and um, especially this idea that money transforms impossibilities into their contraries. Um, money uh, sort of transmutes our incapacities into capacities. And vice versa, and um, and so I became very anti-money, and and it, it sort of influenced my trajectory, having read this essay very seriously, um, towards Marxism because uh, when I found out that the Soviet Union had still used currency, for example, which is like, uh, this is a stupid criticism, but but at the same time I was like they couldn't have been socialist, you know, because Marx says money is bad, so so uh, the Soviet Union is bad. And so that, that, that took me into, like, the uh, sort of left uh, communist milieu. Um, uh, 
uh, I always identified as uh, a Marxist and an anarcho-communist, um, but that was not so much because I thought that that is the necessary scale we need to organize society, but more so that I believe in alliances between anarchists and communists in overthrowing the state, and I think that a ideal post-revolutionary world will be an ecology of different societies, some of which are communist and some of which are not. Um, and I, I think that's important to recognize that um, the sort of dream of making everyone into a communist is not necessarily realizable um, through, through force or through propaganda or through ideology. Um, it's only really possible by proving to people that we're better at meeting needs than capitalism is. And so it's really uh, when we get to test run, you know, what our society post-revolution might look like that we can prove ourselves mm -hmm. to be better. And I think that's the basic philosophy of like uh, dual power and and base building and... and um, this is a whole paradigm I call needs first politics where you start with people's needs mm -hmm. and you meet those needs and they will become much more sympathetic to your theoretical point of view if you're feeding them and clothing their children and taking care of mm -hmm. their childcare needs and, and things like that. And, and um, I think it's worked very well for Philly socialists. I mm -hmm. think, I think a lot of people, who would not be socialists now are because they see socialism in action. They see what the Philadelphia Tenants Union, for example, is doing for tenants in Philadelphia and tenants' rights. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I guess I'm, I'm a very strange kind of Marxist in that uh, I'm an anarchist. I'm anti-state, anti-borders, anti-police, anti-prisons, mm -hmm. anti-military. Um, and yet at the same time, I've read people like Mao, people like Lenin. Mm -hmm. I really enjoy reading them. I think they make a lot of really interesting theoretical points. I'm very interested in the history of revolutionary China and revolutionary Soviet Union. Um, and... Um, and then I, but I've also been really interested in like the insurrectionist paradigm of anarchism and like things like Tikkun and the Invisible Committee. Um, I was really into them for a while. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I jokingly, I, I used to troll people by calling myself an anarcho Maoist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, now I just think, uh, I don't, I don't really know who's right. I don't really care uh, as to like what's the best arrangement of post-revolutionary society. I think there are a lot of debates around um, uh, that recently came up in, in the, the Leftovers group, Facebook group, about um, you know, <coughs> central economic planning and to what extent that requires or entails the state uh, and to what extent that's a desirable outcome. And I think that line is walked by left communists and anarchists pretty tightly. I think that they have different 
takes and approaches to the question, but I think ultimately they're dealing with the same set of questions, which is how do we democratically organize material resources in a way that is egalitarian and doesn't require bureaucracy or the state or or all of that. And so uh, I'm very sympathetic to those debates. Um, and um, I tend to fall on the side of like, there are some things that we need to work together uh, to make sure everyone has access to like healthcare, like food and medicine, like electricity and power. Um, and those might need to be centralized to some extent. And to what extent is an open question for me. Um, but that centralization, I think, does not necessarily um, preclude democratic control mm -hmm. over them. Mm -hmm. And so, I don't know, that's, that's a philosophical outlook on a couple state theory debates, but I'm not sure I've specifically answered your, your question. Um, um, I have two questions. Yeah. Um, and you can pick which one you want to answer first, I guess. Mm -hmm. One is, how do you think your sort of lived experience influences that particular mm -hmm. debate that you were thinking about? Mm -hmm. And the other one, if you'd rather go that direction, is when did you first encounter fully socialists? Mm. Um, so, I think my personal experiences as an educator and as someone involved in philosophy and in an academic ex institution has given me values that a lot of Marxists would consider to be liberal values. Uh, I believe in open discourse and, and um, entertaining opposition and to some extent, like not fash opposition, obviously, and not white supremacists and not, you know, downright reactionary views, but within the left, I think there's a diversity of points of view that are valuable. And so I try to cultivate a space on my Facebook, online, um, among my comrades, among my friends, uh, where we can actually talk about these things. And, and uh, I admit more often than not that I know very little about what I'm talking about um, on a lot of these issues. And a lot of it is just intuitions. And I think we need to rely on intuitions because I think as communists, we want better intuitions about how the world works so that the path to transforming it becomes clarified. Um, and so I think, um, you know, I butt heads with other communists on subjects like education because I do believe in education as a humanizing value. Um, whereas a lot of people just see education as an ideological state apparatus, you know, just a, something that perpetuates bourgeois ideology. And so um, I think that brings me into tension with a lot of the left mm -hmm. uh, that is more anti-establishment, anti-whatever. Uh, um, and I'm sitting over here like, I think kids should read books, you know, like, I, I don't care what they're reading about, just like, as long as they're reading, you know, I think that's a good thing. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't think that makes me a liberal. I think that makes me someone who uh, is open to 
people respectfully engaging with one another. And so um, my personal experiences as an educator have definitely influenced my approach to Marxist pedagogy, I would say, um, in a very concrete way. The Philly socialist question. So, uh, I became a Philly socialist. Uh, lar- I became involved with them largely through my ex, who is the one who the schism happened mm-hmm. when we sort of broke things off. And um, as a result of that, I've been stepping away mm-hmm. from Philly socialist for uh, since that happened. So, roughly two years. Uh, I still follow all their Facebook groups. I follow what they do. I'm a dues-paying member. Um, I still have my T-shirt. Like, <laughs> I'm still very supportive of what they do and of what what my ex does in particular with them because they're very involved and mm-hmm. in the tenants' union and in disability advocacy within the organization mm-hmm. and things like that. Like, I support their work 100. Um, percent But I, you know, I try to respect their boundaries and their their need for space. Uh, you know, and I think we've been getting to a point lately where we're we're starting to find common ground again and be able to talk about being in the same spaces together again. We haven't we haven't quite done it yet, but like a mutual friend invited me to their party, and outside of the Facebook event, and I didn't realize that they were that my ex was the host of the Facebook event and so they messaged me and were like why are you attending an event that I'm throwing without talking to me about it that seems weird and I was like that that would be weird if that were the situation (laughs) but I did get invited over messenger and didn't know about the official Facebook event um, and we talked about it and, and they said, well, I'm not going to be there till later in the night. It sounds like you're showing up early. So maybe we won't even see each other. I ended up going, I didn't see them, but we were able to have a conversation about being in the same space together and maybe that not being a conflict. So, um, I have hoped that I can be more involved with Philly socialists in the future. Um, I, uh, was briefly working on a project with a number of Philly socialist members um, there were about five of us. One of them was my colleague from, from my program. Uh, another one was a, a partner or a comet of mine. Uh, a comet just being a partner who comes in and out of your life like a comet does. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, a friend from the Chavarut Collective and then... Uh, at least one person from Philly Socialists who I I did not know other than my affiliation through Philly Socialists. And we were working on a a project called um, Climate Apartheid. Mm -hmm. We were looking at the UN's use of that term in their latest report on climate change. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I like to call climate catastrophe because I think we're at that point, Mm -hmm. uh, especially with things in Australia right now. This is a side note, but at what at what point do we evacuate Australia? And how many more years? Of, how many more summers like this? And and 
And then I had the idea of like, what if we just tricked all the white people into evacuating and decolonized it that way? That would be really cool. But that doesn't seem like a very viable option. <laughs> um, but um, it's a very scary time. And so we, we were working on this project on climate apartheid. And we were working with this trilogy of terms of climate imperialism, climate apartheid, climate genocide, mm -hmm. and arguing that we were in the stage of climate apartheid mm -hmm. and that eventually climate genocide would be the result. And that these are overlapping periods. So climate imperialism is still ongoing, um, but has been going on for a century or more, uh, probably more. Um, and that uh, climate apartheid is apparent, it's happening and that climate genocide is already beginning. Um, like if you look at the US border right now and the policies which are very you know, reflective of uh, policies used in Nazi Germany against disabled people, like the way they're taking away people's medication, uh, people with type one diabetes are being refused access to insulin and uh, you know, as a type one diabetic. That's one thing I didn't mention earlier is when I was diagnosed with diabetes in 2012, mm. I, I actually was in Israel, I got sick, I was hospitalized, I missed my flight home, um, and then ended up, you know, coming home and having this conversation with my doctors that you're a diabetic now, your whole life is gonna be different. That really was part of radicalizing me, yeah. was realizing the price of insulin and the price of these uh, treatments for diabetes and just how expensive it can be and uh, the fact that um, diabetics all over the country are like rationing their insulin and dying from it because they can't afford it and there was a story of one one woman who lost her son to diabetes mm -hmm. and brought his ashes to um, the CEO of the pharmaceutical company that made the insulin that he couldn't afford mm -hmm. and brought his ashes to him as a protest. Mm -hmm. And that was a tactic used by, that I've written about before, that was used by ACT UP during the AIDS crisis, was dumping the ashes of AIDS victims on the White House lawn, right? right? So uh, it was very exciting to see that confluence of tactics mm -hmm but very dark and scary at the mm -hmm. same time to think about the context for it and why it's happening. Um, so I don't, I don't remember how I got talking about diabetes, but it was, it was a large part of what radicalized me. Um, that was going to be my next question. Anyway. Mm -hmm. which I have a follow-up to, which is mm -hmm. um, sort of thinking about the relationship between disability activism, trans and queer activism, mm -hmm. um, religious identity and, you know, and, and politics around that. Mm -hmm. How do you see those things kind of relating to mass socialist organizations like Philly Socialists or other things like that? Yeah, that's a good question. Like, I, I know uh, my friend who is deaf has had a lot of the same struggles getting access to interpreters through Philly Socialists mm -hmm. that they have uh, through Coltsetic, yeah. our synagogue. And, and, um, had to sort of fight them on it, you know, um, and um, that's um, their report to me, 
that's uh, I haven't experienced that firsthand or seen that firsthand. Like I said, I took distance from mm-hmm. Philly Socialists, so I can't speak to it personally. But um, you know, I think it's super important that um, that organizations like Philly Socialists are doing the work of disability activism, of queer and trans activism, of um, you know, seeing the interlocking relationships between these different struggles. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, disabled people's rights are human rights, mm-hmm. you know, or if you don't want to say human rights, then it's it's about human dignity or mm-hmm. human flourishing, human uh, celebrating what it means to be human. And I, I don't think... Um, I don't think you can have a, a revolution without that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and... Uh, you know, uh, I, I share a lot of beliefs with my with my friend Noah, who's in in leftovers and in a number of left book circles. Just just came out with a great article uh, in the the New Inquirer about um, uh, being transmasculine and uh, dealing with uh, the teachings of feminism alongside of being transmasculine. And it was a really beautiful article and. It brought up a unitary theory, uh, by which was uh, a theory by Lisa Fogel uh, in uh, Capitalism and the Oppression of Women, which came out in the 90s, I want to say, or what, 81? Okay, so much earlier than I thought. Um, and that, that idea of unitary theory was really appealing to me because, um, you know, I've read Hegel, you know, and... <laughs> And Hegel teaches that, you know, Geist or spirit, you know, totalizes everything that came before it. And I think that's what capitalism does. Like patriarchy pre-existed capitalism, but now that we have capitalism, we have capitalist patriarchy, right? Like it's, it's a part of capitalism now. It's a part of the division of labor. It's a part of how our economic resources are arranged. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I, I think that's true of disability, and I've, I've, I've done a, a lot of work on drawing analogies between social reproduction theory um, with um, disabled people mm. and uh, our particular embodiment with respect to uh, the value form, with respect to the, the labor relations that, mm-hmm. that we find ourselves in. Um, Actually, I think Noah in that article cited... Chinzia Ruja, and I think I didn't tell you, but we're in Chinzia's apartment right now. Oh, are we? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a small, lefty world. Um, yeah, um, yeah. I sort of argue that um, disabled people have a very particular relationship to the means of production insofar as... Um, we carry our embodiment with us into the workplace. Mm -hmm. Like we, uh, in capitalism, there's this idea of isomorphism of laboring subjects. And by that, I mean, you can exchange the labor of one laborer for the labor of another laborer and pay them the same wage and thereby create uh, an economic equivalence Mm -hmm. between two different kinds of, two different laborers, Mm -hmm. even though they're two completely different people. Disabled people can't do that to the same extent. Like, if you have a stomach ache, you're expect to clock out, clock in at the 
at the door and leave it at the door mm -hmm. and just grin and bear it. Mm -hmm. Disabled people bring their embodiment with them into the workplace mm -hmm. and that affects the temporality of their relationship to production. Mm -hmm. You can't value disabled people's labor and able-bodied people's labor in the same way without acknowledging our differing relationship to temporality, especially when it comes to social reproduction, to the our ability to come back onto the market as laborers each day, mm -hmm. um, ready to work for the next day. That requires a lot more background labor, a lot more unwaged labor, mm -hmm. um, just in terms of um, the community care that we need in order to uh, the health care, the social reproductive labor, the feeding and bathing and clothing ourselves, all these things are harder for us mm -hmm. um, by and large. And so I think, I think of disability as resulting directly from the economic conditions of capitalism rather than being an identity analogous to queer or trans identity, mm -hmm. right? I don't think of disability as an identity. Mm -hmm. I think of it as an economic category. Mm -hmm. um, and that's sort of my take on unitary theory with respect to disability, is is sort of how that works. Um, a totally different register. When did you get your tattoos? Um, I've been getting tattoos pretty steadily since 2012. Um, it's been a steady stream of like stick and pokes, and um, a number of close people in my life have done them for me. I've done a few myself. Um, I got a few shop tattoos. Uh, this is Yiddish on my arm. It says Care of Heint, which means overturn the world today. Mm -hmm. That is a quote from Rabbi Schneerson, who is a very complicated figure, and I'm quoting him ironically. Um, he told this story in a famous speech about how um, if you were a Jew during the time of the Second Temple and you knew that the temple was about to be destroyed, wouldn't you do everything in your power to stop that from happening? Wouldn't you even overturn the world to stop that from happening? And he says, that's the level of moral crisis that we're at today. We need to care a welt height. We need to overturn the world today. Um, and I agree with him, but for different reasons, <laughs> you know, because he thinks it's modernity and, and secularism and, and, getting away from the principles and teachings of the tradition and I think it's more about capitalism and the oppression of different races and different um, uh, people of different abilities, people of different sexualities and uh, genders and so um, I sort of appropriated that quote for myself. And then the other one, the, the, on my other arm it just says which means little witch in Yiddish. Um, so those were my two shop tattoos. I have a number of other stick and pokes. It's, it's been a journey. I have diabetic on my wrist in case I ever need to be resuscitated by para paramedics. They can know that I'm diabetic. It's more practical than a bracelet because I would lose a bracelet. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's permanently on my body. Um, I was thinking about getting diabetic on this wrist and then dialectic on this <laughs> wrist. Um, but I have yet to get around to that. Um, 
do people ever like react negatively to you about having visible tattoos in like a religious context? Not so far uh, overtly. Um, I feel like I've lost a lot of job opportunities once people saw me mm-hmm. in person. Um, I got to like the interview stage of a number of different jobs that looked really good and they seemed very friendly and seemed very into interested in me mm-hmm. uh, employing me and then and then all of a sudden a couple of weeks later I hear back and they're like I'm sorry it's not gonna work out mm-hmm. uh, and I and I wonder it could be anything is it mm-hmm. because I'm disabled is it because I'm trans is it because of the tattoos the hair right. color like it could be anything mm-hmm. and, and it, or a combination and so I sort of accept that you know there are limits to you know what I can do based on how I choose to present myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what kind of jobs have you worked in mostly? Um, so mostly I've been a student. Um, I'm uh, on medical leave of absence from my PhD program in philosophy at Villanova University. I, um, I completed my master's there. And so... Um, uh, I've mostly been employed as a uh, student teacher, as a teaching intern is what we call it, to distinguish ourselves from teaching assistants, mm-hmm. which is more divide and conquer <laughs> ideology right. of trying not to let us unionize together mm-hmm. uh, with the TAs. But it, the point is to, to explain that we are doing concrete teaching work we're not just grading papers we're actually teaching whole classes uh-huh. and and doing things like that and um and so um they call us teaching interns but um i also worked as an editorial assistant for um uh hypatia a journal uh-huh. of feminist philosophy um they had the big scandal with the uh the transracialism piece that came out um that was after I left, thank God. Um, um, but I recorded a number of podcasts for them, which was just um, taking book reviews and recording them so that people could access them without having to read them. Um, and so if you go on the Hypatia's website, uh, you'll find a number of podcast recordings listed under Zoe Belinsky. They're still up there. And there's some really good archive material up there. Um, so I did some of that. Um, uh, I currently work. Uh, I work at the Jewish Children's Folk Shul in Philadelphia, which is a secular humanist Jewish community. Um, it's very social justice oriented. It's very uh, progressive, I would say. Um, and I work as uh, an administrative assistant slash curriculum planner uh, with uh, the director. Beth Ann Margolis Rupp, mm-hmm. and she, um, it's, it's kind of a complicated situation because it's a Jewish institution, so it has a board, and the board allocates the budget, and the budget is very thin, mm-hmm. and so they do not have the money to actually hire me to do the work I'm doing, mm-hmm. and so Beth pays me out of pocket, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I work as her assistant, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, we tried to get me formally hired with the show and, uh, there were just too many barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, 
I continue to do work with her during the week. And then on the weekends, I'm working at uh, the Union Temple of Brooklyn um, up here in New York, which is why I'm here. Mm-hmm. And um, and I teach sixth grade Torah school there. Yeah. Okay, so if uh, sort of wrapping up our interview, if there's one thing that you uh, wanted people to hear from you, what would it what would it be? That could go a lot of different directions. Um, <laughs> I guess I'm really excited about this um, piece I have coming out in um, in uh, Jules's uh, book uh, with Pluto Press, Trans Marxism, and I have a piece on Merleau-Ponty and uh, social reproduction theory, and a lot of the what I was talking about with disability as an economic relation and not an identity is in that piece. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about the theoretical point is Merleau-Ponty says that consciousness is an I can uh, as opposed to an I think, mm-hmm. like Descartes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I argue that consciousness originally is an I cannot, I can't, um, because we come into the world in a state of incapacity and it's only through a process of labor that we are able to capacitate ourselves as subjects, either our labor or other people's labor, to raise us as children and to take care of us and to teach us about the world. And so, you know, um, you know, you say I'm hungry, I can't access food, but then someone teaches you how to fish, and then you do labor, and then your hunger pains go away because you've fed yourself. Mm-hmm. That's a process of capacitation Mm -hmm. that actually meets needs and uh, lets you come back onto the labor market with your I can Mm -hmm. intact that that Merleau I'm not denying Merleau-Ponty's notion that consciousness can be an I can but I'm saying that it starts as an I can't and that there's a dialectic between the two you come home from work and everyone's everyone's familiar with this so you're so burnt out from work that you just can't do anything but just like lay down and turn on the TV. Right. Um, and it takes labor to get you back to the I can, where you can actually do do things again. And so I argue that dis- disabled people struggle with that a lot more because of our disablement, um, which is not a result of our embodiment, but a result of the conditions of society in which we find ourselves. So it's the economic model of disability that I'm taking uh, I'm taking the social model of disability and taking it a step further. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really excited about that piece coming out. Um, I'm really excited about the work that the Havarut Collective continues to do. Um, we have a new leadership structure, which mm-hmm. is really cool, that we've been using since summer. It's my idea. <laughs> I feel very good about it. Um, we have Havruta pairs, so uh, study buddy pairs mm-hmm. in coordinator roles. So we have three basic functions, the Shabbat and events uh, coordinators, the organizational coordinators, and the uh, hospitality coordinators. Mm. And I uh, am currently serving a term as a hospitality coordinator, um, which is basically welcoming new membership, outreach to new membership, and work with other organizations. We've been, work, we've been focusing on the first two as we're getting started with this new leadership structure. Mm-hmm. 
um, but the third is a, a long-term goal. And the way the organizational structure works is you have these two, um, two coordinators serving six-month terms, but they're overlapping. So you have uh, three months with one coordinator and three months with a new coordinator. And so as they overlap, there's uh, on-the-job training, essentially. Mm -hmm. You always have someone who has been in the role before, who is experienced in the role, who actually can educate the next person to step up to educate the next person. And so it's a great way for institutional memory. It's a great way for institutional continuity uh, to bring projects uh, to completion rather than just start them and then burn out. Right. Um, and it's a great way to make sure everything is democratic and rotational and not, uh, you know, a select group of leadership who stay in power mm -hmm. for long periods of time. And I actually, uh, the Philosophy Graduate Student Union at Villanova, this is, is where I test ran this, this idea, um, because they had co-chairs uh, who served for a year. And I said, why don't we have them serve every six months? And that way, there's always someone on the job who can educate, because it's so overwhelming to come in and into all that responsibility at the beginning of the year. And both people are in the darkest how it all works. And so this system has been adopted by the Philosophy Graduate Student Union, mm -hmm. and it's been adopted by the Chavarut Collective. Mm -hmm. And so I highly recommend that people try out working in pairs and then rotating those pairs in an overlapping capacity, mm -hmm. um, because that seems to work. Yeah, we're sort of trying to do something like that in my group, too. Yeah. Um, anything else that you want to add? Mm. Just uh, stay hopeful, you know, because it's it's really dark and things are coming apart at the edges, but that is also what we want, mm -hmm. uh, is for things to fall apart a little bit. <laughs> uh, even though, you know, the material impact on people's lives is terrible, at the same time, there are opportunities for rapid expansion of, of leftist organizations and leftist practices that, that can really make an impact uh, and pave the way for a better world. And I strongly believe in that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there anybody else you think that the Trans World History Project should be trying to interview? Um, my Chavaruta, Jess Levine, mm -hmm. um, who helped me start the Chavarut Collective and is largely the result or the reason that I'm here and able to be here. Um, she has taught me so much. Uh, I've taught her so much. We are... Uh, you know, I we're partners, but in a very political sense of the term partner. Like we built this community together as a part of our relationship, mm -hmm. and so it was uh, an outward-facing relationship, not an inward-facing one. Mm -hmm. And and the kinds of intimacy we find between each other are all about the political work we do. Mm -hmm. And and she does so much. Um, I mean, she's very well known. She's got a huge Twitter following. She's just from online. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard of her, but she she definitely uh, would be someone to reach out to who could tell you a lot more of the nuts and bolts because uh, she has a better memory than me about the Chavarut Collective. Um, and also she's worked with Philly Socialists. 
She's written for Regeneration Magazine. She has an article on base building coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, she's really, I cannot say enough, she is one of the most amazing organizers and, and uh, just dedicated people I've ever met. And she's, you know, as new to it as I am. And yet, you know, we've been doing this for three or four years together. And yet um, she is accelerated in leaps and bounds beyond what I'm capable of and um, will always be an important source of support in my life and I think in many other people's lives too. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm.